I mentioned that um, Chris was the first to preach for my sabbatical. My sabbatical ended in July. It was the, uh, the only one I've had. So I was ordained in 1996, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, when Chris asked for pastors to fill and he was going to preach through the Psalms, I was the first to respond to the group email. And he thought that was because I was nice. I responded first because I wanted Psalm 51 before anybody else took it. Uh, and so you're in for a treat, as you'll have probably most of the supply will have chosen a psalm that is very special to them, is very meaningful to them. Um, and so uh, Chris's sermon on the psalms was great for us, as was Aaron. So I'm thankful that you have shared your pastor with us in Grove. And I'm excited to go through Psalm 51 together. Uh, I was supposed to be on sabbatical the year prior, and I had a, a terrible accident on my bicycle in my neighborhood, broke my shoulder, concussion. Uh, it was just, it was awful. And so I needed surgery, and I needed therapy, and so I missed that, that sabbatical, which enabled me to take one this next year. And it was our sovereign God's plan that I missed that sabbatical and wait a year because I had an awful year. And I'm sure some of you have had a tough year. As my wife and I walk our neighborhood and we pray through all of the members in our church, it is hard to find one that hasn't suffered loss in the last two years. Uh, we particularly suffered quite a bit of, of loss. I lost my father, uh, the Reverend August Bernhard Kuyper, great Dutch preacher that I'm sure most of you have heard of. You probably haven't heard of him, but it's okay. I lost my father, and a month later, I lost my brother. And um, then we had a, a son that we adopted who, was, uh, who left our family. And then I had a daughter-in-law who left my son. Um, and so when we left for sabbatical, people would say, oh boy, you guys deserve it. And I would say, no, we don't deserve it. We are so thankful that we get some time. Uh, I often talk about a minister's front stage and backstage. The front stage, it's not new to me, but it's a common thought. The front stage, what you see uh, when he steps in the pulpit, what you see when the family's all dressed nicely, uh, and what they put off. And, and it's not just preachers, we all do that. We have this front stage. Uh, and what's backstage? What really goes on? Um, and my wife and I, my wife Tammy and I said, we're going to actually step off stage. <laughs> we're going to step off stage and into the arms of our Savior. And so we had a wonderful season. But when you come to Psalm 51, uh, I think it answers this question of, will God make sense of the suffering? Will our God not just wipe tears away, but is it possible even in this life that we will look back in the midst of horrific things that have happened to us and maybe horrific things that we have done, things that carry with us a sense of guilt and shame, will we be able to look back on those and will we be able to worship the Lord? Psalm 51 says, absolutely. Now, there's a part of the psalm that, uh, if you look in your Bibles, it's a bit misleading because it looks like an editorial comment. So, in most of your Bibles, it will say, 
before verse 1, it will say, A psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now, we're all good Reformed people here, so we know the importance of context. Uh, One of the reasons the biblical context is important is to keep us from error, to keep us from clipping pieces of Scripture that tell us the things that we want to hear, that make really nice, sweet bumper stickers. Uh, Context helps us avoid that. But it's not just avoiding. Context for us gives us a depth of the Scriptures. And so it is absolutely amazing to me. Think about it this way. Uh, think about a president in the United States or, or maybe even, uh, maybe even a, a ruler, a king. Uh, think about him having a, a public service announcement where all his constituency are gathered and that king says what David says. Uh, I want our nation to sing a song about my greatest failure. I want the people that I rule and intend to rule, I want them to know the depth of the sin that I succumbed to and everything I did to hide it from them. I want them not just to know it, I want them to sing about it. And so every time you as a Christian sing Psalm 51, I want you to remember this context. Some of you know the story about David when he went into Bathsheba. Uh, He sinned against the Lord. He was not doing what he was supposed to do or called to do as a king. He committed adultery. She got pregnant. And he thought, okay, I can fix this. In comes Uriah, her husband. And they're at a time of war. And David tells them, hey, put Uriah in a place where he'll die. Before that, he tries to cover up by saying, have Uriah come home for the weekend. Have him be with his wife, and maybe, maybe, maybe she'll keep the secret, and he'll think it's his son. But when we meet Uriah, we think, man, what a mighty man. What a wonderful man. He sleeps on the door uh, he sleeps at the door of the, cast of, of the, of the palace and says, I'm not going to go in. Why should, I, why should I be with my wife when uh, the army of the Lord is fighting? And so David sends him to his death. And it seems that he gets away with it. Uriah dies. He brings Bathsheba into his home. She has a son. But it's interesting as you read 2 Samuel chapter 11, As the narrative goes on, there's a little phrase that said, but this thing he did displeased the Lord. He'd gotten away with it. He'd hidden it. But the thing he did displeased the Lord. And so the Lord sends the prophet Nathan. And I'm going to read this for context. It's from 2 Samuel chapter 12, the first nine verses. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and he said... There were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up with him, and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat the morsels and drink from the cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb. And he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die. 
And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Some say that it was about two years after David had taken Bathsheba that the prophet came to him. The two years that David hid his sin and it festered inside of him. And when the prophet approaches David with this truth, when he is able to see it, and it's, it's so common to all of us, isn't it? He, he sees it in the life of another, a fictitious man, a man who steals a lamb from another man. He, he sees it in this, uh, this image-bearer justice-o-meter in him just starts beeping. How could he do that? He deserves to die. And, and it's so interesting how we can just deceive ourselves. And we see it so clearly in everybody else. And that's exactly what the Lord knew. It's exactly what Nathan knew. And as soon as, the, as, soon as he says it, David's heart is cut. And rather than having Nathan killed, rather than silencing him, David responds and said, I've sinned against the Lord, and I have done what is wrong. And there must have been such a sweet relief for him to finally, to finally have it off his chest and know, I did not get away with it. My God loves me too much, and it was necessary for the intervention of his prophet. I like to put my sermon in a sentence, and here it is this afternoon. Because our hearts must be shaken from their lethargic, sinful state, God sends His prophetic word that leads us in and to restorative, recreative worship. So as we work through this, I, I, I want you to just take note again of that introduction to the choir master. To the choir master, I want people to sing. And it's beautiful the way it starts because it says, the prophet went into David as David had gone into Bathsheba. It definitely is a sign of intimacy that our God knew exactly what David was doing. And in that same intimate way, our God comes into the heart of David and says, what you sought for in the depth of your heart, I am coming to root it out. Oh, David, I am bringing myself with force into your soul to cleanse it. And I'm sure you get that when you're here. When we do a confession of sin, when we do it corporately, when we do it privately, it is not to beat you down. It is to relieve you. It is a glorious, gracious thing when our God points out what you might have even hidden from yourself. And says, today is the day I'm going to work this out in you. This is the person that's going to point this out to you. This is the text. This is the group. This is the body. 
that is going to bring it out. And so as a result, this psalm flows. And so I want to break it down uh, verse by verse. These first nine verses, it's David's prayer for forgiveness and cleansing. So if you have your Bibles there, these first nine verses, you can take that as kind of this introductory. Here's what David does in response to when the Lord comes into his business, into his heart, into his soul. He cries out, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He starts in these two verses with his thoughts of God. Here are my thoughts concerning God. What directs David's response to being confronted is not, I'm a victim, is not, it was her fault, it's not, my other wives weren't enough. What, what directs him is, this is what I know about our God. This is what I know about him. I know that my God has mercy I know that my God has love that is steadfast. He is unfailing. He is not fickle. He alone is the one that can wash, cleanse. He can deep clean me entirely. I know this because he loved me enough to not allow me to continue in my sin. He loved me enough to stop this dark season of my life. When the time was right. He called me back to himself. The prophet comes in to awake him from his lethargic, comfortable, and self-righteous existence. The appeal to God, the appeal to God is based upon God's nature and character, not on whether David deserves it. Secondly, he has these thoughts of sin. So we see this all throughout these first nine verses. And they should always go in hand in hand. Um, we, we should think of God's mercy and his steadfast love as we think about our sins, not one to the detriment of the other. It's common in Christian circles at times to even pray this, God, forgive me for my sin. Good, I'm, got, I'm glad I've got that over with. I don't like thinking about it. I don't like dwelling on it. I don't want anybody else to point it out to me. He's forgiven me for it. And yet David finds it a great necessity that as the people sing about his sin, that he wants to make sure, here, here is what I've done. Here is what I need to be cleansed from. And he uses three words. The first one is transgressions. It's a plural word. I have transgressed. I've rebelled. Oh, Israel, your king has rebelled against the king, against his authority. I've shaken my fist at him. My will has led an uprising against the rightful authority of this God, this God who called me from nothing. You remember when David was called, right? I mean, how many, how, how dysfunctional was his family? Hey, Jesse, bring all your sons because one of them's going to be king. Well, it definitely is not going to be David. So we won't bother getting him, right? I mean, that, that's the story, right? I mean, it's just beautiful. The narrative of Scripture, just beautiful. Time and time and time again. Man looks on the outward. God looks on the inward. That's David. He has transgressed. He has shaken his fist at the rightful authority of the God who chose him and called him. His sins involve iniquity. Uh, that, that word has this sense of distorting the truth, 
twisting, corrupting what is good as Satan in his parasitic kingdom comes and says this relationship between husband and wife is wonderful, it's restorative, it's right, it's good, it's true. Let's twist it a little bit. It could be better here. It would be better with her. My iniquity. I was born in it. I was conceived in it. And apart from your rescue, I live in it. I confess this. And then the general word, sin, missing the mark. I have fallen short of your purposes for me. I have committed things I should not have done, and I have not done what I should have done. Now, this is one of the reasons I believe the Scriptures. What king in the ancient Near East would ever allow this to be written? If you read any of the ancient Near East kings there, everything written about them uh, that, that is from their hand is they're divine, they do all things right, they're wonderful conquerors. <laughs> no one writes this about themselves. And yet, how beautiful are scriptures that we don't tell our children, uh, be like David uh, when he killed Goliath, but not like when he killed Uriah. They say, be like David when his heart is broken and he is humble before the Lord, for our Savior is the same. His steadfast love extended to the son of Jesse. His steadfast love extends to you in the midst of the most horrific, sinful, rebellious acts. This is after a person knew the Lord. King could have done what he wanted. And the world sets expectations on us and our kings and our leaders. Um, and yet David misses the mark and goes humbly back to his Lord. And maybe for us, uh, we've been able to hide our sins. Maybe that front stage that we have has fooled even ourselves of who we are. Maybe we've done that by comparing ourselves to other people. Maybe we've done that by blame shifting what we've done or who we are. And I want to tell you that's the beautiful, beautiful message of the gospel is it is not hidden from our Father. And He'll not allow you to live as one of His children with the front stage and the backstage not matching up. David talks about his thoughts about God, his thoughts about sin and judgment. He says, really, uh, it's another amazing part against you, you only. He, he recognizes, yeah, I've sinned against Bathsheba, I've sinned against the people, I've sinned against Uriah, but every sin I commit is against you, oh God. And again, it's wonderful for us to know as uh, atheists and our, our culture struggles with theodicy, the, 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 the judgment of God, the evil in the world, how can he be good? Uh, David says, all of this is a sin against God, and he sees it. It's a front to him. Um, and man can exonerate, man can forgive, but God really is this ultimate judge. And so David says, here's my sin. I deserve the punishment. I make no excuses. I make no extenuating circumstances. I am to blame. God's character, the nature of his sin. And then uh, also in this one to nine, these thoughts of God's gracious response. 
So here's what he's expecting from God. He says three things. He says, blot it out. Uh, my transgressions, they're stricken from the record. You know, I've heard people say, um, I know God forgives me, but I just can't seem to forgive myself. And there, there may be something in that. I, I, don't, I don't know, but I usually tell people, that's okay, because you're not the ultimate judge of you. If the ultimate judge of the universe forgives you on the basis of the finished work of his son, who do you think you are that you can carry a wrong at a greater extent than the king of kings and the holy God? Get over yourself and receive it. His forgiveness, he blots it out. Why, O oh child of God, would you say it's not been blotted out enough for me? If it's been blotted out enough for him. And he talks about washing. You are thoroughly wringing it out, beating it out completely inside and out. You are blotting out, washing, and you're cleansing with hyssop. You know, lepers were cleansed with hyssop. The mercy seat had the blood sprinkled with hyssop. David's saying, I am, I am being reset apart as a holy set apart one. Only you can do that. Oh, God. And so for us, it's important that what we think of God's character and God's grace, it, it shouldn't just frame our prayers, but our, our repentance and really every aspect of our life. It is, uh, gives us a directive on how we, to, how we to live. But it also encourages us to avoid sin, but also to not harbor it for long. I remember, I remember when I was... I was in sixth grade. I found a pack of cigarettes by the um, construction near our house. And I waited. Everybody was gone. I was one of five kids. I was number four. I was the good kid. I was number four. And um, I, I finally got the nerve. And I, I went in the basement bathroom and I smoked a couple cigarettes. I looked at the mirror and I thought, this looks pretty cool. And then I coughed and spit and almost threw up threw the cigarettes away. Mom came home, or I came home from school, and my mom, super sniffer, sat us all down, all five of us, and said, all right, which one of you smoked in the bathroom? And I was, I knew I was in the clear, because, I, I mean, for sure she thought it was my older brother. He's the worst. He did everything. There's just no way sweet Mark would do it. And I remember in my mind just saying, this is one I can totally get away from. I, I know it. And I just bald-faced lied. I thought, well, if she doesn't think it's Paul, she's got to think it's Elizabeth. Elizabeth is always trying to fit in. I mean, she cut her hair when mom didn't know. She changed clothes, sometimes going to school that mom didn't know about. It's, she's going to think it's Elizabeth if it's not Paul. And I'm in the clear. That festered for about three months. And then I was at church camp. I think we probably watched some movie about the rapture. I don't know. Something scared me. I went to a payphone. Some of you don't know what a payphone is. I went to a payphone. I called my mom in tears. And I'm like, Mom, remember a couple months ago when you asked about the cigarettes? Yes, son. My mom's from Australia, so it's yes, Mac. Mom, it was me. And she said, I know, dear. 
Oh, I wanted to reach in the phone and slap her. You knew? Oh, Mark, I knew. I saw it in your face. I've been praying that the Lord would break you. <laughs> she had a red phone. Rang. Holy Spirit called her, told her everything we did. But there was this relief. There was this relief, even as a kid, of knowing it's done. It's removed. Our enemy on the one side will say, don't confess. Don't let them know. People will, people will look at you differently. I can tell you as a pastor, I've had couples leave the church because of their infidelity, because they knew I knew. And I would look at them, I would say, if you had any idea what's going on in this church, if you had any idea what God has rescued people from this church, it's foolish for you to leave because I know. And yet, that's what our enemy tells us. Hide it, blame someone else, make little of it. Eventually, you'll forget. David says, no, I am so thankful that the Lord has intervened. The second part of this prayer, verses 10 to 12, is then his, his prayer from pleading for God's mercy, his forgiveness and cleansing, to a prayer for renewal and strength. So look at verses 10 through 12. Uh, Create in me a new heart, a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a, with a willing spirit. Not just forgiven and cleansed out of harm's way, but he is saying, inside me, Father, you creator God who knit me together, will you make my heart new? Will you not just cleanse me? Will you not just forgive me? But will you, will you change my affections? Will you make me want and love and, 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 and seek what is right and good? So he says new heart. That, that's, of course, biblical language. In 2 Corinthians, uh, the Apostle Paul writes the, writes the church and says, when you're in Christ, you're a new creation. Ezekiel, there's this promise, I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit. I'll put it within you. I'll remove that heart of stone, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. Psalm 32, uh, Lord, fix my heart. Change it. You can't do this on your own. You can't fix it on your own. You can't say, I'm going to get it right, and then I'll move back into fellowship with the Lord. He has to root it out and recreate it. He asks also that the Lord would then give him new fellowship. In verse 11, I need your presence, O Lord. I need it with me. I need your Holy Spirit with me. I have spurned the work of the Spirit. I have done everything possible to deny my need of you. Return it to me and restore this joy. Oh, Christian, there is nothing quite as joyous as cleansing. There really is nothing quite as joyous. Thirdly, there's a commitment to service. Verses 13 to 17, he then says, uh, here's what is going to result in this, O Lord. I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I'd give it. 
you'll not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. As Aaron said, I've pastored in a lot of places. And one of the projects that I want to do, I'm not a good writer, but one of the projects I want to do is, is with couples who've had infidelity. I, I want them to write their story of reconciliation. I want to make it as a tool that pastors can give a couple that walks in their door. Now, of course, we change the names and the circumstances and all of that, but, but there is such a beautiful amount of stories out there, of just beautiful stories. And in all my years, you, have, you, you, you deal with that. Someone comes in, and, and what was supposed to be right and true and wonderful has been broken, and there's hurt and there's pain, and they say, there's no way this can be better. There's no way it can be fixed. And I want to hand them this book and say, not true. Here are ten stories I've got of God's beautiful working out of something that is awful. How awful was David's sin? You know what happened? The husband died. The baby died. When you read on in 2 Samuel, David, David tore his clothes. He went without food. He locked himself in a room and he cried out, Lord, Lord, spare the child. In fact, it's an amazing response because the child dies. And yet David responds, and the child dies, and his servants don't want to tell him. If you read the text, it's the servants like, we don't want to tell him. And David, David hears that it's gotten quiet, and he comes out, and he says, is the child dead? And they said, yeah, the child has died. And the text says he went in and he cleaned himself up. You know this? He cleaned himself up and he went into the temple and he worshiped God. And his servants come to him and they say, we have no idea what's going on. They said, we didn't want to tell you about the child because we were afraid you would hurt yourself. David, we don't want to tell you the child passed. We're afraid to tell you because you were so brokenhearted when the child was ill that we thought if we tell you that the child is died, you're going to hurt yourself. You're going to take your own life. But you went and worshipped? That doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense in our world, does it? You know, we're good Presbyterians. We don't believe in health and wealth. Yeah, we do. We'll preach against it, but we believe in it. Okay, maybe not to the extent that some of those people around us believe in it, but we have to fight it. We, 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 we think, I, I'm owed something a little better than those people who don't worship God. This shouldn't happen to me. It shouldn't happen to my family. Let me tell you, I've been a pastor for a long time. We all feel it. We're embarrassed about it, but we, we'll say it. We see someone who doesn't love the Lord. Whoever gets to preach on Psalm 73, that's the second choice. I mean, that's going to be great, so... I won't take all their thunder, but, but in a sense, uh, David then goes to worship, and he responds saying this, when the child was alive, I cried out, thinking, perhaps 
God will relent and the child won't die. But now, it's beautiful. Now that he is gone, he won't come back to me, but I will go to him. Why? He knew what Ezekiel said. He knew the gospel of the Lord. He knew that, that the soul who sins will die, that the son will not suffer for the sins of the father. And he knew. The whole country saw this. It was all done in public. And God had to make a spectacle of it. God had to warn his people. God had to discipline, not because Christ's blood wasn't going to be enough. He had to discipline for the sake of the community. And David knew this. And he said, okay, he is God. He does what is right. I will go to him. The third part is this commitment to service. I'm going to teach transgressors. This is us today. We are being taught by the sins of a king. We're being taught. I will teach transgressors. God, your, your rescue of me, it is too amazing. It is too good for me to keep it to myself. Even as a king, and it might undermine what people think of me, I don't care anymore what they think of me. They should know this about you, O God. I'll teach transgressors. I will serve with hope. He says, as I do this, sinners are going to return to you. This is the joy of my salvation, to share my story and see others turn their hearts and lives over to you. And I will worship you. And then he closes with a prayer for the kingdom. In verses 18 and 19, he says, do good, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings and bulls will be offered on your altar. So David knew that his sin did cost other people. He knew his sin was against God and it affected the world around him. And what happened between he and Bathsheba, two consenting adults cost more than they would have ever in their right mind agreed to. And yet he knew that God would make it right. That God would, out of his good pleasure, make his kingdom flourish. And I think for us, it reminds us that there is a personal place in, our, in God's kingdom. There is a personal side to this. We get our hearts right with the Lord, but it rarely happens alone. It rarely happens in seclusion. It is to happen in corporate public worship often. You are to come to worship expecting that two things, at least two things will happen when the word is preached. Your awareness of your sin will grow. And as you leave and as you take the sacrament, your awareness of the grace of God will grow. If you've walked with God for a long time, you should end up being more amazed at his grace. You should have more stories of his grace. Sanctification doesn't mean you need him less and less. Sanctification means you rest on him more and more. And because of that, you are free to let the Spirit work in areas of life that heretofore have been hidden from you and from others. Now, I don't know, is there a handout with the nine takeaways? Was that? Oh, you sent it out on Realm? Uh-huh. Yeah, you all using Realm? Mm-hmm. Confess, confess. All right, I'm going to read through these nine takeaways. Uh, uh, here's, here's what we should take away from Psalm 51. Uh, just just 
uh, nine quick things. <laughs> you only get to preach once at a place. You got to get it all in there. So, um, number one, no one is too holy to fall. It's it's the absolute most dangerous thing for a Christian uh, to to think that. Well, I'll, I'll never struggle with that sin. Uh, no one's too holy to fall. Two, that there is a, a right way to receive correction. It may be one of the hardest things that a pastor or an elder ever can do. I mean, forget about talking to somebody about their kids. I mean, they'll, they'll just go somewhere else. They'll just go somewhere else. If you tell them, hey, you know what? You ought to think about maybe disciplining your kids. What? We'll go somewhere else. There's a way to receive correction. And it is to humble yourself, and it is to thank God. Because other people will see things you don't see. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Three, it should matter more to us what God thinks than what we or anybody else thinks. What God thinks concerning you and the state of your soul and your relationship with Him, it should matter more than what anybody else in the church thinks you have struggled with. Number five, we should be willing to see and participate in public confession. We did that this afternoon. We said a prayer of confession that someone else had written. We confess to sins corporately. Let me tell you how wonderful that is. How wonderful is that for a church? If you invite someone to this church and, and, and they think you're the really good guy at work, you haven't cheated on your expense reports, uh, you don't cheat on your timesheet, you're the really good guy at work, and then they hear you confessing your sins... It's wonderful. It's amazing. It's so disarming to the world out there who thinks we come here and we confess all of their sins. We hold a great rally. We vote for the right person. For them to hear a public confession of sin uh, is, is, is amazing. And we should participate. Uh, number six, never despair of forgiveness. Uh, my wife disciples a young lady whose husband is certain that he is past the point of no return with God. That there is no way the things that he has done that God can forgive. And Christians, we struggle with that. We're, we're so good at, at preaching grace to other people, giving grace to other people. But then when it comes to ourselves, we have this relationship of works with our Father. I can come to him once I've stopped doing this or stopped thinking this or stopped being that way. Never despair of forgiveness. Number seven, the assurance of forgiveness is not always easy to attain, but it should be sought after and it should be expected. It, it, God is worshipped in our accepting it. His justice is meted out on Christ. And he is glorified when we say, Father, I believe that you have cleansed me. Father, I believe you are not going to treat me as my sins deserve. I believe that. I will approach you with boldness because I believe that. Number eight, we must never be satisfied with pardon alone, but seek life as a new creation. As he said, creating me a new heart. It's not, the gospel isn't just you're forgiven. It's your, it's your given this righteousness of Christ, and we should, we should never just be satisfied with pardon alone. And number nine, grace given to us must result in grace given to others. Uh, 
So as David has received it, he says, now I need to share it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for its brutal honesty. How wonderful, Father, that you chose this man to be a king. How wonderful, Father, that you didn't allow him to get away with his sin. That we who follow in his footsteps are able to say, as surely as our God has forgiven David, so will he forgive me. As surely as rich and as deep, the mercy, compassion, and love of Christ towards him, it flows to me. As surely as Christ has died for my sins and is raised at your right hand, I am joined to him. Oh, Father, may we believe this at the core of our being. May Christ's church be known as a place where God has saved huge sinners. And they are willing to tell their story, to glorify you in the forgiveness of their own sins. And prepare us now for the sacrament we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.